Yes, you can get rich with online video, but not through YouTube. And Paramount's new business model makes theater owners and consumers happy. Whoever would have imagined that that's possible? Not me. This is episode 23 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that continues to go behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. A big welcome to Media Unplugged. I am Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asaka. Yes, you can get rich with online video, Tom, but not through YouTube. All right, it's good to know. <laughs> How do we do it? <laughs> that is the question, isn't it? And uh, someone has uh, broken some fresh ground on this. I am happy to report that Comic Book Girl 19, you know Comic Book Girl 19, right? Uh, no, I don't know her. <laughs> Comic Book Girl 19 is a uh, comic enthusiast who is a YouTube fixture. She has uh, upwards of 370,000 subscribers and tens of millions of views on YouTube. Uh, She has what this article in TubeFilter describes as an articulate and insightful pop culture commentary. What this article does not say is that she's young, she's hot, she's got pink hair, she's got tattoos, she looks a little goth. Is she 19? Um, (laughs) Why 19? Are there 18 other ones? She, like, like so many of us, at one point in her life, she was 19. Oh, that's when, okay, I got you. <laughs> so here's the story. Apparently, um, she decided to uh, produce more in-depth, longer-form Vime- uh, videos, uh, but those videos she put out on Vimeo On Demand. Uh, Vimeo On Demand has, you know, as the name describes, an on-demand service for a couple of dollars. You can purchase the uh, right to watch one of these videos. And here's the interesting thing from this article. Our top-selling Vimeo on-demand project, called the Epic History of the House Baratheon, we know what that's about, made as much money as a year of advertising revenue on our whole YouTube channel. Hmm. It's a small audience buying it, and our views are far less than on YouTube, obviously. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. I like that. That's the title of my next book. (laughs) (laughs) If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. Now, what's interesting about this is, and I, you know, this isn't really surprising, but clearly this is a woman whose star was made by YouTube and continues to be on YouTube, and she's essentially using the free distribution of YouTube as kind of a funnel Mm -hmm. into the more hardcore um, uh, fan-based distribution that allows her to monetize through Vimeo On Demand. Mm -hmm. But what's amazing to me is it's such a great statement for the importance of fans because it's the fans that spend the pig $2 and the idea that she can, with millions, Tom, of views on YouTube, tens of millions, with 370,000 subscribers. She has more subscribers than many radio stations in a large market have listeners at any given point in time. She has more subscribers. And yet, one video on Vimeo On Demand can earn more than a year of YouTube advertising. I mean, I, I find that fundamentally stunning, don't you? Yeah, listen, so ad revenue or paid subscriptions or some combination of the two. It sounds like what every newspaper, magazine, you know, everybody's trying to figure this out. And so for kicks, I started doing some numbers. So let's do some numbers. So Comic Book Girl, you said uh, a little more than 370,000 YouTube subscribers. Now, it's funny. I mean, I'm sitting here saying a little more than, I think it's like today, 3,000 more than 370,000. And mm, wouldn't we wow. love to have that rounding error as like our number yes. of subscribers? <laughs> anyway, I digress. So one of her most recent YouTube videos, I looked it up, the, this episode called Epic History X-Men, which mm-hmm. is a, a little over an hour long. 
has 124,000 wow. views on YouTube. So let's assume that everyone watches enough of the pre-roll ad to count it as an ad view, just for kicks. Mm -hmm. So at around $7 per thousand for ad views, she has made around $900 in gross ad revenue through YouTube for that episode. Mm -hmm. So now let's assume that some rabid fans of that 370,000 YouTubers head over to Vimeo mm -hmm. and they pay... And, and right now she's charging $3.99 for the premium video. Now, pre, it's funny because I said premium. What the hell is premium video? And I looked it up <laughs> and she says, this is what she says it means. This was in an interview, which is kind of funny, I think. She said, oh, the premium version? We do very in-depth videos that require me to do a lot of reading and thinking. I have to... <laughs> I have to buy a lot of comic books and movies. So I said, oh, okay, <laughs> that's a good one. So Wait a minute, that's going to be the title of my next book, A Lot of Reading and Thinking. I love that. <laughs> so let's go back to the numbers. So if only 1% of those YouTube fans purchase the premium version on Vimeo, that comes to about $15,000 for that episode. Mm. Take away the transaction cost, and I think Vimeo takes a 10% cut. Anyway, she, she's grossed over $13,000 mm -hmm. on that paid platform, right? So, so what are we proving? So, okay, so you, I, I was thought about this. I said, what did you just prove by doing these numbers? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, really nothing or maybe a couple of things. One, like you said, use the free platforms like mm -hmm. YouTube, Facebook, whatever, to build an audience. Then move the rabid fans to a paid platform for premium content, content, you know, like you said, it requires you to do like a lot of reading and thinking or something or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, 15, 13 grand for an episode where she talks about X-Men. Ah. You know, it's, it's funny because um, that kind of thinking is analogous to what Gary Vaynerchuk said to me a long time ago when I said, Gary, you know, this is when he was doing his wine library TV thing. And I said, you're doing this wine library TV. You're not, it's not, it's not being monetized per se. And he said, no, that's right. It's monetized on the second level is what he said. So mm -hmm. the more fans I get, the more attention I get for those videos, the more people are interested in the stuff that I'm catering, you know, that I'm, I'm trafficking in, uh, the more they're interested in wines, the more likely they are to buy the wines. So the monetization is all on the second level. Uh, Kevin Smith said the same thing to me. He doesn't make money so much from doing his podcast, a little bit, but not a lot. However, it allows him to sell out every show he does. Right. That podcast draws people to the theater. Uh, some of the podcasts are live performances. You're paying a fee for the live performances. You know, there are a couple hundred seats. He does one of his up at the Improv where you and I were. And there are, you know, 200, 250 seats in the Improv. He sells that thing out. That's a good day, even for Kevin Smith. Mm. So there's a lot of this, I think. And it begins with two things. It begins with the talent and the content that's compelling. Right. And then the fans that subscribe or are interested in that content that are willing to, to lay out cash money for it. <laughs> that's right. And the beauty, the beauty of YouTube is that it's such a huge, huge filter that even when you start off with a number in the tens of millions, you get down to a small number, but even as you indicate, that small number is big enough to make you a lot of money on Vimeo On Demand, isn't it? No, listen, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a, 
you know, this is like the Wild West now for content creation. That we, talk about South Park, that announcement, which blows my mind. Mm-hmm. What you know? Talk, tell us, Hulu. I mean, well, how much money? I blew my mind when I read this. It's a hundred ninety-two million dollars over five years, and the deal is that South Park uh, gets another five years of life. Hulu is uh, uh, paying Viacom, uh, which produces the show along with the creative team of uh, Matt uh, Stone and Trey Parker, um, $192 million over the five years. Now, this is the one of the first instances where digital monies will underwrite current production costs. That's the significance of it. And what's, what's fascinating about this is not only does it, it you know, testify to the power of original content and you know, name brand premium content like we were talking about before mm. – but listen to what um, Matt Stone said. I don't know if you heard this, but this is how he described kind of his relationship with the kind of freewheeling, content-should-be-free attitude of, uh, you know, associated with Silicon Valley. He said, frankly, in the past, I haven't much liked dealing with the people from Silicon Valley. I don't like our stuff being talked about as content. Spoons are metal and guns are metal, but they're not the same thing. We don't make content. We make television. And that's now what digital understands it has to pay for. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like that. I don't know if the metaphors are appropriate, but it's I understand where he's coming from. Yeah, the metaphors are kind of dumb, but you know, I mean <laughs> But so is the South Park show's kind of dumb, so. <laughs> but again, it it speaks to the importance of content. So, uh and and the people behind it, name brand content, premium content, distribute it where you can cash Mark, in, right? Mark, we said it a million times. Content platform. Make the content on the perfect the platform. I mean, one of our listeners, uh Dimitri, pointed out a tweet that made it glaringly clear about what you can do with platforms as well. He's in it. It said that Uber is the largest taxi company in the world, but owns no vehicles. Facebook mm-hmm. is the world's most popular media owner and creates no content. Alibaba is the world's <laughs> largest retailer, but has no inventory. And Airbnb is the world's largest accommodation provider and owns no real estate. Well, Vimeo is giving people a platform to put on content, and they're taking 10%. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the platforms, content. Make a decision. Mm-hmm. Try both if you want. But there, there, there is a lot of money to be made if you can make it happen. Try both if you can. Exactly. And speaking of an entity that has uh, um, uh, leverage in both content and platforms, Paramount. Paramount's new business model makes theater owners and consumers happy. This is from a piece from uh, The Wrap, uh, and the title is, Paramount Threatens Release Windows with Flexible Distribution Plan for Next Paranormal Activity Movie. Now, Tom, if you're like me, you are on pins and needles awaiting the next paranormal <laughs> well, activity listen, but movie. But you right? like the horror movies and things like that, so... I do. <laughs> but, that, but like all other horror movie fans, I am not on pins and needles awaiting it. So, let's just consider this an experiment at relatively low risk, but here's what it is. Under the agreement, Paramount titles... Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension, which is the next movie, and Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Two of their biggest pictures of the year? I don't think so. But they will be given a wide release this fall with a comprehensive marketing plan with digital home entertainment purchase available 17 days after the film dips below 300 domestic theaters, which I predict will happen pretty fast. (laughs) Pretty fast, okay? So the idea here is that it's going to be on demand basically two and a half weeks 
from the time it opens in theaters, which is unheard of. Usually that, that's anywhere from, I think it's about uh, uh, 60 days, right. if I remember right. Uh, AMC and Cineplex and other exhibitors, here's the other catch, will receive a percentage of any of the studio's digital revenue mm-hmm. for the period of digital availability through 90 days from initial U.S. theatrical release, in which, at which time it will disappear into the ether never to be seen again. <laughs> with each exhibitor's share proportional to its theatrical gross market share. So, essentially, um, the theater owners who are saying, wait a minute, you're going to pull this movie out of the theaters, uh, or I should say you're going to make it available on demand only 17 days after it opens in theaters. Why should we put it in theaters? The answer is, when it goes on demand, You 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 get a cut, you get a piece of the action, too. And look, the fact of the matter is, Tom, that theater, as much as I think theaters are kind of an outmoded concept, they are kind of the first, uh, the, the, the launching platform for attention and consumption for all the movies that are out there today. That's where every other element of the pipeline begins there uh, with the theater opening. So they are important pieces of the ecosystem. So the idea is, of course, they should share in the fruits of these movies that they help uh, launch. Uh, this seems like a really equitable thing to me, and it seems like a, 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 a an example of things to come, no? Uh, well, I don't think Paramount, I don't think anyone's doing anything out of the goodness of their heart <laughs> because it's <laughs> equitable or anything. For, I mean, I love the headline, right? Paramount threatens the release window. I don't know, it's, very, it's kind of militant. Like the release window is is some kind of entity doing battle with Paramount, right? <laughs> I mean, it's an industry convention, periods of exclusive availability on platforms in order to maximize profits for all players, whatever. I, I mean, why didn't we ever see a headline that said Southwest Airlines threatens baggage fees? I, I mean, we never saw that because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Neither does this. So what are they doing? You're right. It's a test. There's an industry player that's stepping outside of the norm of that industry, the box that defines how things are supposed to be done, and they're attempting to redefine value for all parties, you know, while boosting the revenue of two low-budget horror movies. Now, why redefine the value equation? I'll tell you why. They're scared. Digital is threatening the traditional model. They're Mm -hmm. trying to get ahead of this thing and jump on it before... Movies go the way of the music industry. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. what's going on here. They're saying we gotta, we have to come up with a model that makes sense, or, or yes. something's going to happen to disrupt us. Yes. Well, we're already seeing. Uh, alter- I mean, look, the uh, Vimeo on demand is a perfect example. I mean, there are movies right now. I don't know if Vimeo on demand is the platform, but there are movies, documentaries, and other movies which open on platforms like Vimeo on demand. Right. They skip theatrical distribution altogether, and as you indicate, you can get a relatively small number of people uh, buying your movie and do just fine if it's a small movie. So I think this is a case where the risk is relatively low. These are two movies which didn't have bright prospects to begin (laughs) with. They're two movies which are not expensive to begin with, and it could be argued, and it might be so, that there's actually more money to be made. In other words, the pot may be bigger by uh, assuring the upfront theatrical uh, release um, distribution right. and then giving away a piece of that action 
than it would be if they waited 60 days and then, uh, you know, people could get it on demand at that time. So I think this is an experiment which will allow them to better model what happens when the distribution window shrinks and they share a piece of the pie with their partners. That's what's going on. And the fact that the media referred to it, the deal is a quote-unquote surprise agreement with AMC Theaters and Cineplex. Okay, if that's true, then surprise agreements are going to quickly become the new normal. Because every media brand, every brand that I know of, is trying to figure out how to partner to attract attention, add unique value to their audiences, uh, you know, make some money. It, it's a natural strategy in a world busting at the seams with, with comparable products and services. I mean, I read last week that Facebook is right now in negotiations with major record companies looking for licensing deals so they can insert music videos into Facebook's users' feeds. Mm-hmm. Right? So surprise, YouTube. Here comes Facebook. <laughs> Surprise. Surprise. Yeah, I think the, the thinking here is analogous to what a music label does with an artist, right? They do a 360-degree deal, which means everything that artist touches, a piece of it goes back to the label right. because the label helps promote the artist. Well, there's a, it's totally analogous with movie theaters. Movie theaters help launch um, uh, franchises. They help launch successful movies. Without the movie theater launched, the movie is unlikely to be successful. I can't think of a single example where that isn't so. Right. So why shouldn't the theaters oh, I agree. touch every till, uh, just like everybody else? Yeah, well, this, is, this is what's going to come in the future. You know that, and I know this. That is exactly right. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, it's time for Rants and Raves. Do you want to go first today? <laughs> I think I go first every time. All right, I'll I go first. I think last time I went first, and I regretted it. All you right, go fine, first. I'll go first. This, so I've got to rant. But for everyone, well, don't, well, you usually always rant, but sometimes I rave. <laughs> but for everyone else, it's probably a rave. But it's a rant for me because here I am working on a new book about how the stories we tell ourselves create the lives we live, right? And I had this crazy mm. goal going into this book that maybe, just maybe in some small way, I could help people deal with life's most puzzling question, which is, what is the meaning of all this madness? So Mm -hmm. I'm doing some research, and what do I discover? Google has made a computer program, a chatbot, that will debate the meaning of life with you. (laughs) Now no one has to buy my book. Google will help them arrive at the answers. And on top of that, get this. They're using precisely the same philosophical approach that I'm using, which is based on stories. They taught their computer, this massive neural network program, how mm-hmm. to debate the meaning of life by analyzing old movie dialogue. They, they went into an enormous collection of movies, and they had this computer just go listen to all this dialogue to figure out how to debate the meaning of life. Now... This is a proof of concept. I've got some time, but like every other entrepreneur and creative out there, I have to hurry up because AI is going (laughs) to render me obsolete. Or I was thinking, maybe I can relax and I can hope that that thing they created analyzed every movie. And if so, that would include things like Animal House, where Blutarski, he says, what... Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? <laughs> Hell no. So if they listen to movies like that, then that computer's going to be as screwed up as everybody else, and I still have a chance. <laughs> That's my rant. That's awesome. And, and what the thing about what you just said that made the biggest impression on me was that I went immediately to your book, and in my mind, I'm going back to the index in the back. Yeah. 
the glot, whatever it is, and I'm looking for my name before I do anything. Okay, <laughs> that's what everybody I'm gonna look does. For my name, <laughs> I'm gonna look for my name. It'll be in there. <laughs> All right, I have a. That's awesome. I have a couple. Uh, one is a rant. The other is kind of an observation. I'm gonna start with the rant first, and I'm gonna surprise you with the observation. Um, the rant. Now, did you know? Well, let me ask it a different way. Okay. Um, who owns Spotify, Tom? I don't know. <laughs> well, of course, the founder of Spotify, Daniel Ek, and some other executives there, and a bunch of investors. Do you know who else owns Spotify? Do you know who else owns 17% of Spotify? I do not know. Apple. Spotify, the <laughs> Spotify, the entity that's abhorred by so many artists, that's getting a lot of grief from artists now, that labels it are... It must be an artist. Know, ...pitch battle against. <laughs> Actually, it's... A bunch of music labels, Tom. Uh, In fact, music labels own 17% uh, of Spotify. conspiracy thing. Many <laughs> people don't know this. And here's an article from Hollywood Reporter, because uh, some people are challenging um, Sony uh, in particular um, uh, because of that uh, relationship. So here's the title of the article. Sony asserts right to structure deal with Spotify even if results disfavor artists. <laughs> Oh, my. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so here's what Sony says. They, 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 Sony cites the judge and says it may act in its own interest in a way that may incidentally lessen the other party's anticipated fruits from the contract, which is a nice way of saying we're going to screw the artist. Um, it's really, really interesting because the gist of this thing is that because they own a piece of Spotify – and Spotify has to negotiate with labels for licensing rates. Essentially, uh, several labels get to negotiate with themselves. <laughs> and who's left out of this negotiation? Our friends, the artists. The artists again. That's right. Think, think about that again, folks, when you uh, talk about how horrible Spotify is and how great <laughs> the labels are. Um, second, I have an observation. And this is based on something you sent me earlier this week. You didn't know I was going to talk Don't about this. Don't get me in trouble. You sent me a, you sent, I'm not going to get you in trouble, I swear. You sent me a piece from Seth Godin. Now, um, you and I both know Seth. Seth is an awesome guy. We have the greatest regard for Seth, and, and this piece is no exception. Um, but the piece was on was a clip from um, the uh, Star Wars presentation at Comic-Con, and Seth was making a point to say that J.J. Abrams, who's directing the movie, uh, was telling, not showing. How great it was that he was telling, not showing. That he wasn't actually showing any clips from the movie. He was telling a story about a movie. Meanwhile, here was this big YouTube thing, and it was essentially an insider's take on behind the scenes of the movie. Mm. There were no clips from the movie, but it was all insider stuff. And your point was, well, isn't this the essence of showing, not telling, <laughs> when you're showing a you know a several minute uh, 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 featurette essentially about the movie? Right. And I thought about that. And here's what I have since learned, and this is what you did not know. Oh. <laughs> Seth, Seth thought that J.J. Uh, was so clever, such a great storyteller, such a great dramatist, so smart. What he didn't realize was this. Lucasfilm, as you may know, is owned by Disney. Lucasfilm, the producers right. of Star Wars. Marvel is owned also by Disney. It turns out that Marvel was not represented at Comic-Con this year for movies. They were represented for television, but not for movies. None of the Marvel comic book superhero movies were represented wow. at Comic-Con. Why is that? Um, well, could it be that Disney has an event coming up soon called D23? It's an expo that they do every single year, which is essentially a fan expo, which sounds a lot like... Comic-Con. Comic-Con. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's happening up in, uh, up in the L.A. area uh, coming up soon. So is it a coincidence that Marvel has withheld all their movie, um, uh, superhero movie stuff from Comic-Con? Is it a coincidence that Lucasfilm withheld actual scenes from Star Wars from Comic-Con? What do you want to bet that real-life scenes from uh, Star Wars show up at D23, Tom? Uh What do you want to bet that real-life scenes from Marvel superheroes show up at D23? Uh, You live in In a world of conspiracy theories, don't you? That's right. In other words, this was not the um, dramatic artistry of J.J. Abrams. This, this is was not his ability to tell a better story. how to make this happen. <laughs> this is mommy and daddy say, I can't stay up late. <laughs> so I'm going to have to work with what I have. Oh, so a very interesting observation. So it's, it's just not only was, I think, Seth wrong about his assessment, but he was completely missing the truth of the story, which is that J.J. was showing all he had and all he was allowed to show. But he did a good job doing it. He did a great job doing go. it, but let's not give him more credit than he deserves, right. although he does deserve a lot. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Biz Bloggers, and Net News Check. And one of these days, Huffington Post. we got to work on that, Tom. <laughs> you can follow Tom on Twitter, at Tom Asacker, and Mark, at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, mediaunplugged.net. Special thanks to our producer, Jeff Schmidt, exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. Media Unplugged.